Well, I want to welcome you again, whether you're here at the Brentwood campus or our Franklin campus or watching online live streaming, or if you listen later in the week, we're glad you joined us and it's a privilege to be with you today. I never take for granted that I get paid uh, to study the Bible and to stand up and teach an audience. It is humbling. It's overwhelming. Um, I don't know if I can translate what it means, but it is an extraordinary privilege to be a part of a local church and hold a Bible up and explain it. I am humbled to be a part of this place. I'm humbled to be with you, and it's an honor to, uh, to do this for a living. I can't believe I get to do this. It's a delight. When you walk the Christian life, there are all kinds of disciplines that come our way. There are things that we learn and struggle with and grow with. Um, but perhaps there's no more difficult discipline, there's no more difficult challenge than prayer. As Christians, we say things like, I wrestle with prayer. My prayer life is weak. I know I should pray more. All my prayers sound the same. I don't know how to pray. I fall asleep when I pray. How many of you, uh, this is identification, I have fallen asleep while I'm praying. How many of you have done that? Praying is boring. I tried prayer, but prayer didn't work. I used to pray, but I don't anymore. And on and on we could go with reasons we struggle with prayer, wrestle with prayer, however you want to define it. As we continue our study in the little letter to the Ephesian believers, you can open your Bible or booklet to turn to chapter 1, verse 15. Uh, we're going to read two very long, complex, marvelous, breathtaking prayers. And the first one we look at today is in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Now, this is Paul's prayer, and you might know it, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. And Paul begins his prayer, if you summed it all together, he's basically praying a thanksgiving prayer without end. This is ceaseless thankfulness for what God has done. Paul's heard a report about the Ephesian believers, and he begins in his prayer, he's blessing God and thanking God for their faithfulness and for their love for one another. Let's look at it, and let me ask you to read with me off the screen, or if you have the booklet, it's the New American Standard Bible Version. Let's read this together. Let me ask you to stand while we read it. Let's read aloud. Let's read it well. It is the very Word of God that Paul crafted for us. Let's read together. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints. Thanks so much. You can be seated. Now, like chapter 1, verse 3 to 14, chapter 1, <clears throat> excuse me, verses 15 to 23 are also one long sentence. So we're going to see a total of eight of these long sentences in the little letter to Ephesus. Now, in verse 15, you see right at the beginning, for this reason. 
That's one of Paul's connective tissues. When Paul says, therefore, or in order that, or you'll, as you read Pauline language, you'll start to pick up on these. And when he gives this phrase, for this reason, it's tied back to something he said before. So to distill all, verse 1 to verse 14, the best way would be to look at verse 3. Because verse 3 is more than likely the keystone of this connection. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then he listed those, and we, we looked at some of those in the past weeks. Predestination, adoption, grace, redemption, forgiveness, the wisdom of God, the knowledge of salvation that we revealed the gospel to us, the inheritance of the saints, and being sealed with the Holy Spirit. So those are the blessings that he has blessed us with in the heavenly places, not tangible stuff, not money, wealth, success, power, lots of kids, a happy life. Those are a different kind of blessing. These blessings are spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. And then he elaborated on those. And now he says, for this reason, because you possess all these blessings for this reason, Paul writes, as he continues, I've heard about your faith and I've heard about your love. Now, we warned you as we started Ephesians, the first three chapters are a bit theological. They're a bit heavy, but you're a bright group. You can learn these things. You, uh, we can all grow in our knowledge of Scripture. And we lay the groundwork theologically in the first three chapters before we ever talk application. What do we do differently in chapters 4, 5, and 6? So we continue in this foundation that Paul gives us. Now, Paul's thanking God for their faith, and he's thanking God that they love one another. Now, you know, we're all friends here, right? We're a family. We're community. We get along. We, we Warts and all, right? Um, it's easy to love people that are not following Christ. It's easy to love people that don't know Jesus, right? I mean, it's pretty easy for me. Why is it hard for us to love other Christians? I know I'm the only one that feels that way. I know all of you all love each other completely and perfectly. But don't we sort of give the those who don't know Christ a bye Oh, they don't know Christ. So we sort of give them a lot of latitude and we love them. We, oh, they're on their way or whatever. We have friends that aren't believers. And we, it's easy. But sometimes Christians are the worst, aren't they? Sometimes we don't like to be around certain believers. And I don't know about you, but um, I remember uh, meeting some of these heroes. And you meet these Christian heroes and afterwards you go, ooh, I don't ever want to talk to them again. We have a hard time loving the body sometimes. If I take these two together in verse 15, that he heard of their faith and the love for the saints, and he doesn't stop giving thanksgiving, it seems to me, Paul's saying, if I'm rightly related to God vertically, I will be rightly related to God's people horizontally. If I'm not rightly related to God vertically, I won't be rightly related to people horizontally. And is it fair to say, if I'm not related to people rightly horizontally, I'm out of sorts with God too? Do you love other believers? Or do we sort of tolerate one another sometimes? We put up with one another sometimes. 27 years ago, a staff member, when I was at a church in the D.C., Virginia area, confronted me, and he, he's, he was not known for his diplomacy, and he was a pretty abrupt individual, a big personality, and he said, uh, he asked me in a very incriminating way, do you love this church? And I was angry that he asked me. I was angry the way he asked me. And I was sort of pushed back a little bit. And I said something that didn't answer his question. And not being, you know, 
didn't change his opinion. And he asked again, do you love this church? I'm asking you, do you love this church? And I can't remember what I said, but I didn't at the time. And during the next week or so, the Holy Spirit working on me in the corner, beating me up. And I started analyzing. There there were a few people. There were a short list of people that were giving me a lot of grief. And I was looking at the whole church because of this small list of people that way. And it was coming out in subtle things I was saying. And he picked up on it rightly. And some time passed, and I went back and told him. I thanked him for his, albeit horrible, way of confronting me, which I think I pointed out. But... um, (laughs) I also stood before the church sometime after and said, you know, um, I named this pastor and I said, he confronted me on something and he was right and I've been wrong. And I apologized to the church and I also told them that I did love them. And it was true. I don't know if anyone's confronted you lately or if they need to, but do you love the body of Christ? And if you and I are rightly related to God by faith, Paul seems to be saying here, I'll be rightly related in love to the body of Christ with which I associate. Paul knew, and he thanks God. Look at verse 16. He does not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in his prayers. You see, if faith is just academic, if it's just intellectual, then we have knowledge about God. If faith is just emotional, if it's just from the heart, we might say, our feelings are both unpredictable and unreliable. It's not a matter of just knowing more about God. And it's not a matter of only being more emotionally interested in God. It really is a connection of the two. This passage is saying that you and I need to be intimate with Christ. We need to be intimate with God the Father. And again, we have the Trinitarian doctrine in this passage. It requires the spiritual work in us. Christ worked for us in order for us to be in fellowship with God. We need to mature. We need to grow in intimacy with Christ. We need a personal relationship with Christ. We use that phrase so cliche, but it's remarkable to think about what does it mean to have a personal relationship with this God? Check the box, he saved me, do whatever I want, pray a lot about things I want him to do, and live my life according to my plan. Is that a relationship with Christ? Is that intimacy with him? So when it comes back to prayer, part of the reason we struggle with prayer is most of us, I'm not saying all of us, most of us come to God with a consumer Christianity we've talked about before. God, I want you to do these things for me. And we pray endlessly about God doing those things for us. But are we really related to God? Or do we just come to him as sort of the great wizard to answer my questions and solve my problems and give me what I ask him? It'd be striking if we could look in American Christianity as a snapshot. I think most Christians would be people that checked the box, walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, got baptized, and now it's a consumer Christianity. What is God doing for me? As opposed to how am I walking with him intimately? Do I know his mind? Paul prays further for their wisdom and their enlightenment. Look at verse 17 again, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Let me make a little grammar comment here. If you're using the New American Standard or any Bible, it'll have spirit of wisdom and then a connection and of revelation. You could add that spirit again, and it would be safe contextually, 
or to say this way, to give you a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. Why? So that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Paul addresses and pray, he addresses God the Father of glory, and he asks that we would be, just like the Ephesians, have wisdom and be enlightened. Now, glory is one of those Bible words. Again, we, we don't use glory. You probably didn't use glory in an email the past year. You probably didn't say the word on the, on the phone, glory, to your husband or wife. You didn't say, that, glory, hang up. You, know, you just don't do that. We, we don't use that word. Um, it's a Bible word. It's a religious word. What does glory mean? Glory is a massive con, uh, thing in the Old Testament, massive theme in the Old Testament. Glory is the idea of reflecting the essence of God's character, reflecting the essence of God's character. But because God is sovereign, glory is overwhelming. Um, when the pillars were made to sustain the temple complex, they were named, uh, uh, Horam gave them each names. And the idea is that they're the kavod, they're holding the weight of the temple complex up, metaphorically. Uh, you need, so they were the biggest, most ornate columns of the temple complex, the most attention to artistry and detail and these massive temple complex pillars because they were holding up the weight of God imagery. Glory is that which radiates from God, that overwhelms. You can't see God's glory, so he lets Moses see his glory as he goes by because we couldn't comprehend if we saw the glory of God. Honer writes, he is not only a glorious father, but the father to whom all glory belongs. Glory is a reflection of all the attributes and essence of God. And so he appeals to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom. God is, we might say, the repository of all this, and he's praying that you and I would understand it. Now, spirit of wisdom probably does not refer to the Holy Spirit. We've already had Paul mention the Holy Spirit when he mentioned the sealed with the Spirit Spirit in verse 13, that we're permanently sealed, our salvation is secure. If you trusted in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation... The moment you trusted Christ, he indwelt you in the person of the Holy Spirit. That Spirit is sealing your salvation. Like a document that's sealed, it cannot be broken except by the one it's addressed to. In this case, you and I are sealed by Christ's Spirit, and no one can break that seal. We're guaranteed, we're assured of our salvation. So he's saying here, this Spirit of wisdom would be like the Spirit of gentleness that he writes about in Corinthians. We're not talking about the Holy Spirit of gentleness. We're talking about, we get the idea of something gentle. Uh, some of you ride horses. Um, my youngest daughter rode for a number of years, and it, it struck me how this little tiny girl was unafraid of this massive animal that could totally trounce her in a second. And she was, he's a gentle animal. No, he's not. He's a beast. He's a beast, and you should stay away from those things. There's a reason you put a bridle and bit on them. Uh, but she, it was a gentle horse. The spirit of gentleness. Here we have the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation. Do we understand something? Revelation technically means disclosing something previously hidden. 
It's not that God gives you and me a new revelation. God told me this, or I saw a vision and God said to me, God spoke to me to tell you something. That's not what this revelation is about. This revelation is something that was once hidden. Now it's exposed and you see it and it makes sense to you now. When we think of the Holy Spirit's work in our life, we have a lot of unfortunate teaching out there. And more accurately, there's not much information out there about what the Holy Spirit does and does not do in your life. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 for a moment. I want to take a little excursus, a little sidebar, and talk a little bit about this because I think it will help you and me understand what it means to have the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 13. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13. Paul writes, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. I've shared this story with you before, but it's a good refresher. When Cindy and I were dating and I was going to buy her a ring, I had a friend who was a gemologist. He bought and sold diamonds and other gems. And he said, listen, I can get you that diamond for a fraction of what it costs in a store. Well, I'm in. So uh, we met, and he dumped out all these diamonds on this black piece of fabric, and he took a little tweezer and an eight-powered loop magnifier, and he looked at a bunch, and he teased out, let's say, five or six, and we looked at them, and he explained to me the color, carrot, clarity, cut, so forth, and, um, and he, he liked these. And so we looked at them up for a while and said, so, so what do you like? And so I asked him, I said, well, how much do these cost? And he said, well, this one's like 4750 this one's like 3600 this one's 1790 And I said, wait a minute, how, there's no price tag on them. How do you know how much they cost? And he got kind of incredulous and he said, I'm a gemologist. He bought and sold gems for a living. That's what he did. He was trained as a gemologist. So he could appraise the value of a gem by looking at it. When you trusted Christ, the Holy Spirit indwelt you. And when you, you used to read this book, you may or may not have understood it. You may or may not have liked it. It was probably dry and boring and dull and hard to understand and complicated, and you couldn't stay with it. But once you trust Christ, His Spirit indwells you permanently. And now, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he who is spiritual appraises all things, meaning the Holy Spirit gives you the ability to place value on the text. It's not that the Holy Spirit lights up your mind or tells you what to think or somehow gives you a new revelation. Rather, the Holy Spirit indwells you in me so that what was once before a piece of literature at best is now the Word of God. And when you see those insights, the Holy Spirit is granting you the ability to appraise them because He indwells you in me. We know a lot of what the Spirit does. We create some things that He may or may not do. But this text tells us that When we have the Spirit of God, we can put value on, we can appraise something of a spiritual nature. Let's go back to Ephesians. Paul prays for uh, them as a group of believers. He prays for their wisdom and enlightenment. He also prays now that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. Some of your Bibles might say since instead of the word if 
or then. And it's a, it's a bit of a difficult translation. Since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened may be a better rendering. What is this about? The eye is a metaphor of the gateway to the heart. For the Greek first century mindset, the heart was the center of man, really more the visceral part. The Greek word for this in the text is kardios, cardia, cardiac, cardiologist, heart related. Uh, the Hebrew thought of more of the, the breath and the nephesh, the soul of man, and a lot of uses of the word God breathed in life to Adam, the breath of God. We talk about the death rattle. When a person dies, they breathe their last because they, they would look at breath and the throat, this being the soul of man. But the first century, it was the heart. So what's he saying? When you look at these things, I want the eyes of your heart to see them. I want you to be intimate with them. I don't want this to be merely information that's intellectual and academic. I don't want it to be solely emotional. I want the eyes of your heart to take in both wisdom of God and to see things you didn't see before, before you were a Christian. Paul is praying that God would give them a spirit of understanding, of insight, so they would be intimate with God. The center of man's emotional seat, we'd say, he wants them to grow in their connection with God. Again, I reference, you can know a person, you can know a famous, uh, you can read about, maybe you have an artist that you love, a vocalist or a musician, and you read everything about him or her. You read the tabloids, you follow with interest this movie star, um, you, you love this person, you like their trade, you like their skill, you like their acting, whatever. I, Cindy and I have a list of politicians that we follow, we like them, that's getting shorter and shorter, but uh, we're attracted to certain people, we like to know about them. But then you really don't know them until you meet them and become friends. And some of these people, perhaps you've had the experience I've had, you meet them and you don't like them at all. The way they treat other people, the way they treat you, the way they talk, the things they say, it's very off-putting. So you thought you knew them at a distance by their persona and the PR and the marketing and the articles, but when you got to meet them and spend some time with them, you don't mind if you never see them again. And you certainly don't read about them anymore. One is knowing a person. One is knowing about a person. Do you know about God or do you know God? Do you know about how you got saved? Do you know why we do Lord's Supper? Do you know what baptism means? Do you know that you can pray to him or do you know him? They're two very different knowing. Cindy and I are coming up on 34 years of marriage, and we have worked very hard at our marriage. It hasn't been a passive relationship. And for 34 years, it's frightening how much we can read each other's mail. Um, I can walk in the house and come up the steps. Her office is on the first floor of our house. And I can walk in, and I, I'm not a mystic or anything like that, but I can tell you, I can feel the vibe when I open that door, what kind of mood she's in. And if I can't feel it when I walk in the door, if I bend around and look in her office and see her, if she's on the phone or papers are galore or she's working on a contract or something, I know how that night's going to go. I can tell if we're going to have dinner, it's going to be a nice night. I can tell if she's really got some things going on and leave her alone. I don't have to say a word. I can just look at her behavior, look at her body language, and I can know, leave her alone. 
don't mess with your mother right now. I would advise. Um, she can look at me in the morning and know immediately my pain level and if I slept. She can say, you didn't sleep last night, did you? I can see it in your face. When I walk across the room in our house, we're in a small group, she can tell everything about me by the way I walk because she sees the nuances that other people that don't know me well wouldn't see. When uh, we play games as a family, it's one of the things we always enjoyed, these crazy games that kids come up with, you know, catchphrases, the one that we seem to always go back to. And uh, our kids forbid Cindy and me from being on the same team. Because one word, we get the answer. How did you do that? Well, we've been married 34 years, you know. We, we kind of think a lot. Just one word, and we know the answer, you know. Humphrey Bogart, we know it. You know, it's just no big deal. Um, we know each other really well. You can be married and live on parallel tracks and not know your husband or your wife at all. Some of you know that too well. How do you know God? When I boil down the idea of a friendship or a relationship or a personal relationship, it seems to be to me there's two things at the bottom of the pan, time and a common interest. Time and a common interest. So if I have friends in the technology world, uh, geek friends, we're brought together because they know more about technology than I do, and I want to get their help and insight. And some people actually come to me for technology support, pity them. Uh, but I know more than they do. And so we have a friendship based around something in common. If you have a hobby, if you ride horses, if you're a musician, whatever your hobby is, you probably have a friend or friends who also do that thing. That's your common interest. And you spend time with them. And after time and a common interest, you become friends. 33 years in a marriage, we spend a lot of time together. We have a lot of common interest, each other, our children, our family as a whole, what we're going to do in our future when our children uh, are married and gr grown and gone, and if and when they bring children back, if we let them come home or not, uh, all those things. Uh, we, we know each other really well because we spend a lot of time on these common interests. What is your common interest with God? And you need time in it. You cannot learn you can learn about God coming to church. You can learn about God reading a book that some Christian has written. You can learn about God going to a community group that, that watches a football game and whatever. It's fine. Um, but do you know him? You see, I would argue that apart from time in his word, over a long time, you do not have an intimate relationship with him. Now, you know I hate guilt as a motivator, and I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but I know the data, the data is in, people don't read the Bible. And we have it now in every possible form and fashion and translation and electronic device, as well as, you know, the real Bibles that you still actually turn pages and read. Do you spend any time with him? You're bright people. You're educated. You're intelligent. You have jobs. You have families. You have careers. You make good decisions. Maybe you save a little money. You live on your income. Maybe you do all the things right. Get all the boxes checked. Do you know your God? Well, 
What would it take for you to spend 10 minutes every morning before you turn on the technology? If I turn on the technology, I'm toast. If I check one or two emails or texts, I'm toast. I will never get back to this book. Maybe you can do that. Some people, I use the Bible software all the time in everything throughout the day. I use a program all the time, but I can't do it for a devotional. I can't do it for a time with just God and me. Because once I turn the technology on, it takes over and I get lost. And next thing I'm emailing and answering questions. 10 minutes, 20, an hour. Most of us spend more time uh, catching up on our feeds, our news, our posts that we like to watch, our blogs, whatever the things that come in that you do have interest in, your hobbies, getting ready for work, putting makeup on, getting dressed, washing your car. We'll spend more time on those things than we will getting to know the God of the universe who's forgiven us and saved us and blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And we don't even know what that means. You're in a Bible church. You should be the most Bible literate group in this area. Because that's what we do. We talk about this Bible. Hopefully in your community groups, you spend some time in the text. Books are fine. You can read books about the Bible. It's fine. But they're just writing about this. Hopefully they're writing about this. Do you know him? There's no substitute for time in his word. You will never grow beyond your exposure to his word. You can live on what you learned when you came to Christ or Young Life or Campus Crusade or when you were in college ministry or in your community group. That went, Man, we had a group years ago. It was the best group I was ever a part of. It was the, we were so close. It was the best group ever 10 years ago. We haven't grown anywhere since. If all you did was go to the fifth grade again and again and again and again and again, and again you never finished high school or college. Are you growing in your intimacy with Christ? He wants to have an intimate relationship with you. Not a vicarious one. Not a second one. Not a third generation one. He wants one with you. He loves you. He died for you. He forgave your sins and mine. And the amazing thing is he's available anytime. It's easier to make an appointment with Jesus than my doctor. He's more available than whatever. Why don't we do it? Is it like prayer? It's hard. I tried it. It's boring. It's dull. I don't know what to do. You're smart people. Read one chapter of Proverbs every day. It'll take you probably less than five minutes, four minutes to read one chapter do it on the day of the month. Proverbs 1, first day of the month. What's today? The second? Catch up. Read Proverbs 1 and 2, and tomorrow read Proverbs 3. And in a year, you will have read the book of Proverbs 12 times. One of the simplest reading plans there is. Read an Old Testament and New Testament passage. Read some Proverbs. Read the Gospel of John. If you get bored in a passage, if it confuses you, and you don't have the energy, just turn the page. God's not going to be mad. He's not going to say, you didn't read all the genealogies. I'll give you an F, you know. <laughs> He's not mad at you. He loves you. If you want to know the mind of God, here it is in print. And if you get it from only Lloyd, Bill, or me, ooh, be afraid. Be very afraid. 
I would, I would be a satisfied man to die knowing that anybody who called fellowship his or her church spent an hour a day in his word and in prayer. Can't start that way. You'll fail. I did. When I started that way, I failed. I told, I've told this story many times. I heard that 21-day thing. If you do anything for 21 days, it becomes a habit. So I got up at 5, 5 or 5.30. I was in college in the morning, and I would read my Bible and pray for a half an hour. And I did it every day for 21 days. The 22nd day, I still didn't want to get up. I still didn't want to do it, but I kept doing it. And I would do 5 out of 7, 3 out of 7, 4 out of 7, 1 out of 7. I'd miss 3 or 4 weeks, and I'd get real guilty, and I'd read 7 out of 7. Then I would, I'd fall asleep reading it in the morning, even, even though I had coffee. That's why I started drinking coffee in college, because I tried to stay awake reading the Bible. Because nobody's supposed to get up at 5 in the morning. It's ungodly. I mean, it's dark outside for a reason. <laughs> three years I wrestled with that. Three years I wrestled with having a daily devotional. And then one day, I don't know, it clicked. And it was, I don't have to, I get to. It's not that I'm supposed to, it's that I can. It's not that I should or shouldn't do these things, it's that I have the opportunity to do it. And the God of the universe who made you and knows everything about you, and you don't know much about him. Paul's praying that the eyes of not only Ephesians, but your heart and my heart will be enlightened that we will know the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation, that we'll be able to discover things and know who he is and what he means in our life. And then your prayers move from a consumer Christianity to about God's attributes, about his holiness, his glory, his justice, his kindness, his compassion, his mercy that never fails. It, it changes your view about the world. It changes your view about my little life. It's all about me, 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 and a bigger picture about what God is doing in the sphere of your influence and how he would use you. If you don't have an intimate relationship with Christ, you will never know more about him than you do today, and you will never grow or experience anything in the Christian life beyond what you have today. No one can make you grow spiritually, but he is ready for you when you choose to do it. Start tomorrow morning. Another morning person, do it at night. I don't buy that, but try. I just don't many people that can pull it off at night. Maybe you can. Father, you love us. I don't know why you love me, but you do. For all who've trusted in you, you've given us eternal life. You've placed your very spirit to indwell in us so that we don't have to be troubled or worried or fearful or anxious. But to grow in our intimacy with Christ would mean to leave behind the Christian life that we thought we knew. Of prayers that don't seem answered, checking boxes, rather to grow in the knowledge and grace of who you are, to love to spend time with you, to be eager that we would not feel right and if we didn't spend time every day in your word and in prayer. You long for us to be conformed and transformed into the image of your Son, not the world. And I pray that your Spirit will work in each one of us, that we would fall more in love with you, not by some emotionalism, not by more academic information, 
but by the wedding of both those, our intellect and our hearts, as we expose ourselves to your word. Will you help us? We ask in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.